Hi there. Okay, good morning, everybody. Uh, we're gonna get started officially now. Um, thank you very much uh, for joining us this morning. Um, I think the last couple of weeks have been difficult for all of us, on um, both personal and uh, professional level. Um, you know, a lot of us have to face our own, you know, emotional and physical challenges at the same time, trying to move on with our professional lives. Uh, I've got a lot of people approach me uh, talking about 3D printing and how, you, how to use 3D printing to solve the current COVID-19 supply chain crisis. Um, and I've seen a lot of solutions as well, and it's, it's a bit overwhelming. Um, so I thought it, it would be a good idea to gather experts um, to have a conversation. And that's today's goal is to have a conversation, share what we have experienced, our perspectives, on all the efforts uh, using 3D printing to solve COVID-19 crisis. Um, I want to introduce my partner in crime today, uh, Nabil, Dr. Nabil Kaji. He's a dentist and also innovator himself. And I will let uh, Nabil, you introduce yourself. Thank you, Jenny. Um, yeah, as Jenny mentioned, I'm a practicing dentist in Northern California, one who's had an interest in 3D printing for a number of years. And uh, glad to see uh, the fellow just dental community in general having an interest in 3D printing with many more 3D printers in dental offices and clinical dentists themselves looking for solutions that they can print to help support our frontline workers and for PPE for ourselves and community. Um, that's my perspective in this call to see, uh, you know, what solutions are out there that we can turn on our printers and add to this manufacturing um, collective process. Um, at, at this time, we'll, we'll go ahead and uh, introduce, uh, have the, our panelists introduce themselves. I'll start off with, um, with Dr. Alan Dang. Uh, can you please introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Alan Dang. I'm a spine surgeon at the uh, San Francisco VA and University of California in San Francisco. Uh, today, I'm actually representing Printer Press, a company I helped start as Chief Medical Officer. Uh, Printer Press is the world's first manufacturing company with end-to-end -end capability from concept to design manufacturing and even assistance with FDA clearance. And thankfully, we've been essentially fully operational during this pandemic. Uh, we made some technical and organizational investments in February to make work from home possible for any non-COVID-19 activities. Uh, when the uh, county uh, shelter-in-place order came in, we went to minimum basic operations but within a day, we're getting requests from our hospital partners for COVID-19 supply issues, which really helped us reopen and go back to full speed. Um, you know, I think we're helping our community like everyone else in the 3D printing community with 3D printed face shields. I think that is one of the true success stories uh, of 3D printing in this pandemic. I think one thing that has helped Printer Press quite a bit is that we had already interfaced with seven local hospitals and so our, our hospital networks. And so we were able to identify the specific shortages that they face. And thankfully, not every hospital is using the same product or facing the same shortages. Uh, but when the hospitals came to us with problems, we would then apply our engineering team to figure out across our printer fleet of, you know, FDM, FFF type printers, resin printers, and even metal 3D printing uh, to identify the best solution for each hospital. Um, we have existing partnerships with UCSF Surgical Innovations and partnerships with some of the labs at Stanford. And so even ideas that are 
at the university when they need production level uh, prototyping or production. Uh, we've been able to help them. Some startups have come to us. Uh, and I think one thing that's really helped us is that we're one of the only ISO 1345 facilities focused on 3D printing. And our prototyping is done on production machines, which allows us to ramp up pretty quickly. One thing that I've found is that although the FDA has provided guidance and uh, certain relaxed standards, that's only the, the federal guidelines. And uh, you know, with a lot of these 3D printing, it's coming outside the standard supply, supply chain. And different hospitals have different uh, paths for taking something that has been manufactured into clinical practice. Um, so I think that's having that ISO 1345 has really helped us uh, be on the front lines in a way uh, and helping to supply hospitals in times of shortage. Judy, would you like to go next? Okay. Um, <clears throat> good morning, everybody. Um, my name is Judy Thomas. I, I represent Origin. We're a 3D manufacturer in San Francisco. Uh, uh, recently, we've transitioned from the manufacturing of 3D printers to uh, actually manufacturing devices to support the uh, fight against COVID-19. Um, in our experience so far, we've found, you know, face shields uh, will be a nice, um, with 3D printing, we're, we're able to help with the supply chain. You know, we clearly have a break in the supply chain. Uh, our goal, again, is as always, you know, should be is to make sure that, to ensure that we're doing more good than harm. And uh, when you have to move very quickly in an environment like this, you have to rely on very strong partnerships. We've uh, partnered closely with um, individuals like Desktop Mo um, Metal and Topology, who is phenomenal with their lattice designs world-class material companies, you know, our own expertise in uh, 3D printing, as well as reaching out to, you know, healthcare organizations such as Harvard to make sure that um, the designs that we're, we're creating are compliant. Um, outside of PPE, we've found that an, an area where 3D printing has really proven its places with the development of swaps <clears throat> for the testing. A lot of the other devices, we know that we're only really fixing a break in the supply chain, but SWABS is an example of an application that is ideally suited for 3D printing. We um, worked very hard. We're very proud that from concept to approval, we were able to partner with the individuals I mentioned to bring a swab to market or, or get it through approval on the very first try, which is phenomenal. Uh, all of the, everybody we've worked with, they've worked 24 seven to get that done and to be able to do that in less than 36 hours was incredible. And that's an area that we really feel that 3D printing stands out. You know, it's rapid manufacturing, uh, customizable, which we know in the dental industry, which I'm a 20-year uh, member of, it's been incredible. And, and to that point, to speak of dental, you know, we have dental manufacturers, dental laboratories across the country. Um, dental has always been a community, <clears throat> and it's phenomenal to see them, not only across the country, but 
across the world to step up and to change their manufacturing of dental devices uh, into PPE devices to support the broader community. So I'm really proud to be a part of that community. Just a little plug for, for dental as a whole. And um, I think what's really phenomenal in this entire experience is the collaboration you know, of individuals with expertise, but we've even, you know, in this industry, it can be very competitive with 3D printers. We've seen our competitors, we've all come together as a community uh, to share information. There is no way that we could have possibly come to market and created these devices and provided these solutions without a clear collabor collaboration amongst competitors and really pulling on the expertise of individuals, whether it's the materials, it's lattice designs, um, hardware, software, to make this happen. Thank you, Judy. Adam, would you like to go next? It's, you're muted. Yeah. Good morning. Uh, my name is Adam Feinberg. I am a uh, professor at Carnegie Mellon University uh, in uh, biomedical engineering and material science and engineering. I am also a co-founder and chief technology officer at Fluidform, which is uh, commercializing the fresh 3D bioprinting technology and related uh, liquid uh, 3D printing technologies. Um, more recently, uh, in response to the COVID crisis, I've been helping to lead the CMU effort to apply our manufacturing design and uh, intellectual resources of our faculty and staff to addressing different kinds of challenges related to to the COVID-19 situation. Um, it's really been trying to figure out what place can a university serve um, kind of in this, in, in this dynamic. And really the role we've found is as a kind of connector between large hospital systems, uh, nonprofits, uh, regional manufacturing. We kind of have tentacles into all of those and have really been able to try to help kind of coordinate and uh, focus the efforts on the maker and small manufacturing side to the actual challenges the hospitals are facing, uh, really in terms of supply chain, obviously mostly PPE, but also issues around how to handle the situation around limitations or, or uh, lack of a vent, uh, depending on the ventilator uh, situation and say sharing vents. Um, how do we make sure different systems can handle that in different hospitals? I think to the point that was already raised, you know, every, every hospital system seems to be dealing with slightly different uh, issues. And um, the supply chain issues, uh, resources within the hospital are different, you know, different sizes. There's really doesn't seem to be, and, and if maybe pa other panelists know, some sort of overarching organization or management structure or even federal system that helps coordinate that. I don't think it's really ever been necessary before like it is now. And so I think what's interesting is also to think about looking forward, you know, what opportunities are there to kind of establish a more dynamic, uh, either best practices or infrastructure for kind of rapid response to these kinds of situations in the future, both domestically, but also internationally. Thank you. Thanks. Farosa, would you like to uh, introduce yourself next? Um, hello, everyone. I am Feroza Kotari from Anatomize 3D. I hail from India, so I'm probably going to be bringing in a different perspective uh, as opposed to the US scenario. Um, just in general, but even though it's a different perspective, the situation still remains quite similar. Even the kind of products that we've been working on over here is more on the face shields perspective. 
uh, of course, in ventilator splitters, where we are trying out whether or not something like this will be feasible. Uh, we are trying to gear up for making valves, which will be majorly helping in the supply chain uh, shortage. And uh, we're also looking at the aspects of making self-sustaining respirators. Uh, in India, if I were to tell you about the situation, it's quite precautionary because we still haven't reached a stage where we are at shortage of a lot of these uh, ventilator or respirator equipments. But we are at a shortage of uh, face shields and PPE equipments. And not just on the hospital side, but we've also seen a huge requirement by uh, the citizens and by, the, by people of the law. So for example, police, uh, considering that we are in complete lockdown now for the next two weeks and probably we don't know how long it's going to increase, we have a lot of people from the police force who are out in the streets ensuring that not many people are roaming outside so we can contain the virus. These are the people who are also in shortage of uh, PPE equipments. So it's not just the hospital, but we are also seeing a lot of demand and requirements from, uh, from the law enforcement at our end. So that's something that we are trying to uh, help by increasing volumes, by understanding what are the materials that might work, that might not work, and uh, not rushing into the whole thing, yes, even though the situation demands it, but taking careful steps, ensuring that we are not giving out the wrong products out in the market. Uh, so yeah, that's that's about anatomized 3D working towards the COVID solution. But apart from that, uh, uh, the essential, I mean, the services which are elective designs and elective 3D prints, that's come to a standstill over here. So we don't have uh, much of that going on. So most of our efforts are now on uh, helping bridge the gap in the supply chain for COVID products. So yeah, that's a little bit from our end. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for dialing in so late. And so is Dr. Ho, who's dialing in from Singapore right now. It's, I think it's almost midnight. So would you like to introduce yourself, Dr. Ho? Yep. Thanks, uh, thanks, Jenny and uh, Nabil for having me. So uh, I'm, my name is uh, Cho Singh, and I uh, represent the National Additive Manufacturing Innovation Cluster. Uh, we're based in Singapore. Uh, we're, we're a little bit like uh, American Mix in, in a sense. We, we looked at um, implementing strategies for future production and harnessing additive manufacturing technologies. And we work as a bridge between uh, industry, research, and public agencies, um, basically to uh, grow um, the industrialization of these technologies. Uh, on the COVID-19 situation uh, from Singapore, we, uh, we actually had a the first wave, uh, which uh, we started detecting in, in January, and um, uh, initially things were, I would say, under control until we had a, a second wave uh, brought about by uh, a lot of the uh, uh, Singaporeans that actually traveled overseas. Um, so actually, um, I'm not sure you've read, but we just recently decided to uh, lock down uh, partially, I would say partially, because uh, I think still a lot of the essential services and businesses are still open, uh, but everybody is supposed to work from home, uh, starting from 7th of April to 4th of May. And also for, for a while, I think the schools were open, um, but this has actually changed as well. Uh, so I think for about a month or so from 7th of April, um, all, schools, all schools will be basically uh, implementing home-based learning. Uh, from our uh, side of the, uh, I think we've been tracking uh, the global efforts very closely. Uh, um, in terms of working with the Singapore clinical community, uh, it started actually 
uh, a little bit slowly uh, because I think uh, from a supply chain perspective, we, we were in, number, in terms of number of cases, we were quite low. But because of the um, escalation now that you're seeing all over the world, um, there's now a, a growing uh, urgency for our, our uh, local businesses as well as the clinical community to potentially source for parts that are potentially 3D printed. So we've been actually working uh, very actively in the last week. I would say the, the activities actually started to ramp, ramp up very rapidly. We've been talking to uh, Tan Tok Seng Hospital and uh, National University Hospital, scoping on their needs. Uh, some of the most immediate needs they have right now actually is uh, face shields. So we've been very fortunate uh, in the sense that a lot of there's open source designs out there, such as the Prusa 3D. Uh, CJM, one of the startup in Singapore, actually has successfully ramped uh, uh, some of the production and they've even started a crowdsource funding to uh, support some of the, uh, um, the production uh, costs. Uh, we've also been looking at uh, things like swaps, uh, nasal swaps and uh, Structo, also another startup in Singapore that makes uh, dental platform machines. Uh, they've also successfully uh, ramped uh, some low volume production. So we're trying to work closely with um, the test certification companies like Tusu to to, uh, to decide what's the best way to bring these to uh, implement in the, in the clinical community. Um, at the same time, I think we, we've uh, looked at uh, some of the uh, resource links around the world and we thought um, given the, the huge uh, number of these different resource links, we decided to create one ourselves so as to aggregate all these uh, resource links uh, to make the information uh, much more accessible to our community especially for those who are not uh, acquainted within this space. Um, I'm very happy to be here. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, to be honest, I, I've been, we've been reading the news uh, from this part of the world on the situation in the US. Uh, it's uh, quite frightening the way uh, this thing has just grown so rapidly. Um, so uh, anyway, my thoughts are with you guys over there. Thank you so much. Uh, next, we're gonna move on to Dr. Albert Wu from Brown University. Great, uh, thanks Jenny. I, I am happy to just talk for a few minutes. I also had some slides in case people were interested in um, kind of more specifics. So I kind of defer to you. I thought um, we were in a flight slide free zone. <laughs> is that right? Okay, well, well I'm happy to just uh, skip the slides in that case. Um, so I am a plastic surgeon. Um, my background is in craniofacial surgery. Um, and I also happen to be the director of 3D printing lab at Rhode Island Hospital. Um, based on this work, I had been tasked uh, recently by the hospital to look at 3D printing options um, for uh, all sorts of PPE. Um, uh, so for the last several weeks, we've been working, uh, looking at kind of the needs of the hospital, um, specifically Rhode Island, uh, but also uh, regional centers across the country. Um, interestingly, uh, we have come to different conclusions than most of the people uh, in the, on the panel here. Um, I've essentially um, abandoned efforts uh, looking at um, uh, 3D printing shields. Uh, I had actually um, uh, presented data to our hospital administration um, on the different types of shields that we had available. Uh, and interestingly enough, we found that manufacturing was far more uh, efficient and faster. Um, I had presented that uh, for uh, the typical uh, FDM printer to print a shield, it took about four hours on say a Prusa type mach machine. 
we found that using our manufacturing partners, we could create 8,500 shields in two days. And so um, we are using our manufacturers for those purposes. Uh, now I'm currently spearheading efforts looking at 3D printing um, or use of 3D printing technology in terms of N95 masks and mask alternatives. Uh, we're exploring different issues in regards to um, uh, N95 material or the like, uh, as well as the kind of fit and function of each of the different types of masks. So that's where really, really most of my effort has gone into. Uh, besides that, I've been tasked with the more successful you are, uh, the more tasks you seem to get. Uh, in, in this regard, the hospitals asked me to look into um, uh, 3D printing or creation of glide scopes, which are um, at a uh, significant, uh, uh, which we have significant uh, limitation in regards to the number of uh, and are difficult to get uh, because every other hospital in the country is trying to source these. Uh, similarly, we also have a limitation in regards to uh, paper or caper shields, uh, which are positive um, air pressure, uh, uh, kind of the hazmat type of systems that, that you have uh, seen on the, on the news or on television. Um, hospitals currently are um, needing um, those supplies so that they can kind of optimize um, uh, delivery in high risk situations and those positive pressure uh, masks are in short supply again uh, based on their disposable components. So we're working with, uh, or my team uh, and other uh, collaborators in Rhode Island are working together uh, to try to develop uh, technologies for that. So uh, I, I think I'm a little bit different in that I am currently in the hospital. I'm a full-time clinician who also tends to um, uh, uh, work in 3D printing, uh, it seems like we may be a little bit more um, on the front lines and have a, a different idea of, of what the needs are. And it seems like besides kind of the big picture needs that everybody has, each hospital is having difficulties uh, with individual sourcing of uh, specific products that uh, they need us to try to reverse engineer uh, on a very uh, short uh, notice basis. Thank you. Um, Lee, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank all the medical professionals who are out there on the front line. Um, without you guys there, we're all going to be a Petri dish. So keep up a good fight. <clears throat> um, so I work for HP. I've been with HP about 15 years. I've been in 3D printing, uh, unfortunately, more than 20 years. Um, and this is not my first rodeo for a, a viral. I was in Hong Kong during the SARS crisis, so unfortunately it happened again. Um, HP has a global task force working on the COVID-19 3D printing and um, everywhere from Singapore to Barcelona to the US. We're working on a number of, of projects for pretty high volume production. Um, a lot of these applications, again, if you're, if you're using on an extrusion-based thing, yes, it takes a few hours for one shield. We have one of our largest customers, the Smile Direct Club. As you can imagine, not too many people are going into the Smile shops to get their teeth straightened today. So they've um, moved their substantial production capability to doing current 3D printing COVID-19 projects. One example, um, they're doing 7,500 shields a day right now. And HP is using our muscle to actually source the films and have them uh, rotary die cut hundreds of thousands a week. Um, so we'll be launching that. 
the Avid design in Colorado just announced a new uh, shield design that's actually can do 300 shields at a time in, in one of our production machines. Um, so if you go to hp.com, go 3D print COVID-19, all the validated applications that we have are, are posted there. And I also encourage people to go to the National Institute of Health webpage for validated uh, medical 3D printing production. There's a lot of hacker, um, good intention websites out there. Not all of them are, are kind of healthcare validated. So the 3D printing vendors and a number of hospitals grouped together a kind of an ad hoc uh, committee to support the NIH effort to validate designs before posting. And they have different categories. If it's FDA approved, great, put FDA approved. If it's medical validated, but not FDA approved, great, that's another category, use at your own risk. So I encourage people to go to the NIH site for that. Uh, we're working with uh, a lot of companies for actually pretty decent volume production. Superfeet's another one. They're doing, um, they've signed up to do 30,000 Papper hoods for production. They're working with Boeing. You can imagine uh, a lot of people that are doing the stitching aren't doing a lot of planes right now. So they've redirected that manufacturing muscle to do Papper hoods and Superfeet is actually 3D printing all the plumbing plastic pieces to go into that. Um, and Prisma Health has announced that they're have FDA clearance for the emergency use of ventilator splitters. Um, and they're doing human trials on that right now. And if you go to the Prisma Health Vespa webpage, you can get more information about their splitter. And of course, we're working closely with Materialize and their muscle in the medical printing community. So it's, it's all hands on deck for us and kind of goes right up HP's technology is to use technology uh, to make lives better for everyone, everywhere. Thank you, Lee. Uh, so Nabil, we have a, a list of questions we have prepared. Um, we we wanna ask a couple of those questions and I think I'm gonna wait for the audience to submit more questions and we can go through the audience questions next. Nabil? Uh, yes, uh, th thank, you so, thank you so much for the introduction. Um, I, I think that a lot of questions that, uh, uh, you know, a question that often comes up is in general, like what design should we use? And thank you, Lee, for um, listing the number of resources that you have regarding HP and, and others. I'd like to open that question up to the other panelists. If you know of any uh, good sources of open source designs that individuals with um, printing capacity can access at this time. So I'll, I'll take that in the sense that UCSF, this is uh, the library, has actually put up a website at library.ucsf.edu, and you can take a look at the work that um, we have done to, to improve the face shields. Our STLs are open source, and that's important because 3D printing allows for distributed manufacturing, which is needed because you can't depend on just a single supply chain or vendor. Um, we've done our own design optimization, so starting with the Prusa design, uh, which is a three to four hour print uh, with our modifications. It prints on a Prusa in just about an hour. And uh, we have um, 17 printers running, some Prusa, some TAS6. Uh, we have different sizes as well. So a lot of these face shields are designed for whoever designed it. Uh, but once we were in the clinics, there are people that have bigger heads or smaller heads. So we actually have 
three different designs that are available on our uh, website and UCSF and printer press are working on G code optimizations because anything you can do to do a faster turnaround time really does lead to uh, a lot more products. Um, I think if you look even at the Prusa design or even at the UCSF design, uh, the agility of 3D manufacturing is helpful. So I think one of the things is that uh, if we had started with injection molding, then we would be stuck in a single design. Uh, so I think the other part is as you look for validated designs, validated means that it works, but it may not be the best. And you do want to keep up and go back to that same resources, whether it's the NIH website, UCSF's website, uh, to see if there's new revisions or versions um, of that. And I think that's one where um, you don't want to just get too locked down into any one thing. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll collect all the links that you guys talked about and share with all the audiences. I just want to add that. Yeah, I just wanted to add, uh, I mean, I know you're going to share the link, Jenny, but to, to Lee's point, if you just Google NIH 3D print exchange, the first link should be the, the website that will take you to the, uh, the uh, FDA and NIH uh, kind of co-organized uh, collection of uh, open source designs that have been approved. So Lee, you mentioned that um, some of the designs uh, that you recommend uh, is validated. Can you expand on that a little bit on the validation process? Does the person who's manufacturing these themselves need to go through the same validation process? Uh, we have one question here asking about, you know, if, if they're saying people who regular other non-medical manufacturer want to help now, what should they do? So what I mean by validated is we've had healthcare professionals review test and try the, the devices. I mean, the shield's a good example. Certain countries, you need a, you need a top shield as well to pre prevent any kind of splatter that's getting into the gap. So we have optional top splatters. They're all adjustable um, for multiple sizes. But the other thing, unless you have the film um, in, available in quantities, it, it negates the, the value of some of the hoods. So, Again, we've made our supply chain available for hundreds of thousands of those those films that are affordable at you know probably under thirty cents a piece. So it validated means it, it, again not FDA certified at, at all, but a healthcare professional reviewed it. And on the NIH site, they have um, both America makes. Uh, VA hospitals and a bunch of other career 3D printing experts looking at the at the submissions coming in. I think the validation part to add to that, you know, a good example is the difference between an N95 filter and an N95 mask. Uh, for an N95 mask to actually function, that filter has to be completely tight. You can't have any bypass of airflow. Um, so I think that's one where you have a validated filter, but maybe your 3D printed design or the manufacturing method um, is not there. And I think same thing with the splitters. The splitters are relatively easy to design. They can be manufactured, uh, but that has not yet been validated because there are concerns from the anesthesiologists here of how effective that may be. Um, and so I think those are the challenges of, you know, the instinct is we want to do a lot, but we do want to be careful. And I think right. the FDA has been very agile and fast. They're working on weekends. You can pick up the phone and call them. Uh, but if you actually look at what's on the NIH website, it's, it's relatively small and 
Um, but I think that the individual needs of each hospital, you know, they also do the validation because they're the one asking for the supply shortage and weigh the, the pros and cons of um, what they're doing. Yeah, I, I think that's, you know, everybody's making a really great point here is that we've, we've come up with a lot of designs and I know some concerns for origin, you know, we're really taking our time and doing diligence, even with the face shields, it was important to us um, in looking at some of the early designs that have come out there and, and um, speaking with the different hospitals, everybody having different expectations, uh, you know, and we're looking at a face shield design that will have you know, NASI um, approval, you know, having met a standard that is accepted in the industry. And I think it's essential that we have a source for everybody that can, that we can go to. And that's something we should look at in the future going down the road so that when things like this happen, we know where those sources are so that we don't have random designs out there. You know, the face masks are a very good example you know, we've been looking at that and pondering, you know, is this something that's better for molding? Could we ramp up much faster if we could provide a better mold? Because you have to have a, a seal to provide something out there that gives somebody a false confidence, could possibly do more harm than help. And um, again, you know, having a central location where we can source validated approved designs, whether it's FDA or, or medically approved to meet, you know, basic standards in a crisis. And the N95 mask is a good example of actually some of the bigger players have, have decided to use their resources elsewhere. Both 3D systems and materialized said that they don't think 3D printing is the, the appropriate technology to get a true N95 qualified mask. With the, because if it doesn't seal, then it's not really an N95 mask. Um, what is kind of interesting is, is the only kind of personalized product that I've seen come to market most all of these things are just bridge production to substitute for injection molding or some other mass manufacturing method. And the supply chain is going to catch up pretty quickly. And we know that most of these 3D printed projects has got a, a shelf life of maybe, what, four to six weeks or something like that. Um, there's a company, I'm going to do a shout out for uh, a Bay Area company called Bellis 3D. Yeah. They have a face scanning app for iPhone 10 or 11. Yeah. And they actually can create a custom uh, frame that will take a surgical mask, not an N95 mask, but a surgical mask and actually seal it better to your face. That's the only thing that I've seen that's actually been able to be kind of mass created, mass produced, because that can be printed on any type of 3D printer. And then if it's made out of the appropriate material, you can dunk it in a bleach or hydrogen peroxide solution, sterilize it and use it over the top of a surgical mask. It doesn't make it an N95 mask by any means, but it makes a surgical mask more effective. So shout out to Bellus3D, B-E-L-L-U-S-3D.com. It's a free app right now, and it will automatically create that frame to be used over the top of a surgical mask. And that's being validated at uh, Loma Linda University. That's good to know. Actually, funny enough, yesterday, Nabil and I were just talking about that design. He was showing me how he's putting on a mask on his wife using the same app. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a very, very good face scanning app. And not too many people know it, but the iPhone 10 and 11 have really good 3D scanners built in. 
we should all create um, a 3D scanner face next time we're on this video chat. Yeah, I just wanted to also point out for the masks, you know, I think there's also, you know, it's not just supply chain, but there's other kinds of innovations coming down. So we pretty much stood down on the, at least for the hospital setting, the N95 mask, because they've now come out with new sterilization techniques. I don't know if you've heard about the vaporized hydrogen peroxide, but now yeah. we can essentially sterilize, you know, as long as the hospital has that facility, and not all do, but a fair number do, um, they can probably at least 10 times sterilize a mask. So you're talking about an order of magnitude expansion potentially in, in the mask usage of the N95 in a hospital setting. Doesn't address the rest of the at-risk community, but at least for those, and that does that's a major part of the demand, so. So this is sterilizing the existing? Uh, yep. Okay. Yeah, so as long as they're not soiled, right, which is a different issue, but if we're just talking about sterilization, uh, it's a vaporized hydrogen peroxide. It, it is an emerging sterilization technique instead of like ethylene oxide or other approaches. You know, many hospitals have this capability uh, in-house. And then uh, I, think, I think it was Duke who recently ran a study and validated, I think it may have been 30 or 50 times uh, that you can sterilize these masks and still have uh, an, an acceptable level of uh, filtrational function. So that's pretty exciting, I think. I, yeah, I, so I, yeah, go ahead, Nabil. I, I, you know, Feroza brought up a point where, um, you know, there, there's an increase of demand for uh, more efficient ma uh, filtration masks for, say, individuals in the community, law enforcement, and others that may be on the front lines that just don't have access to masks at this time. So as far as, say, vetting designs for those masks um, is, is one area of concern, but then also procuring suitable filters is another. Um, you know, so we, we, we see designs about repurposing HEPA filters, about sourcing, you know, P100 filters, sourcing fil filters out of vacuums. Um, uh, as far as what could we get to the front lines of our, our, our law enforcement or others that are in the community? Um, uh, what types of designs um, and filters, you know, are, are on your minds as would be the most efficient at this time. Um, so HP's looked at that quite hard. We use a lot of filters in our 3D printers and our other um, industrial printers. A lot of them have fiberglass in them. So they're, they're good for vacuuming stuff uh, and separating powder. But can you imagine the fiberglass filters and it's small particles and you're breathing them into your lungs? I think there was how many billion dollar class action suits over that years ago. Um, yeah, so we've got to be very, very careful on the filter media. And we have talked to some of the large suppliers of the N95 rated medical filters. Um, they're crushed. They're, they're crushed. I think 3M was making 50 million masks a month. And the worldwide demand is 300 million. So they've doubled their output to 100 million, but it's going to take them a few weeks, a few months to get there. But the demand right now is 300 million. Uh, so I, I would uh, echo exactly what Lee said. I think we all need to be very careful in terms of sourcing other types of filters. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion um, all over the internet in terms of using HEPA filters as a possible uh, filtration function. But the reality is that um, um, those HEPA filters are not 
um, antibacterial and antiviral rated. Um, they've, um, HEPA filters actually used in inline ventilators uh, in the hospital are indeed antiviral and antibacterial rated. So despite what you may read on the internet, a general HEPA filter is not certified to be safe, uh, especially to, uh, right on top of your face. There's been other discussions in regards to use of like the Halyard 600 material, which is a surgical wrap. Uh, and uh, there were rumors that that was FDA approved and indeed that was not. Um, so uh, unless it specifically is N95 rated, uh, you wanna be very careful about using other things, including vacuum bags, because that can potentially cause more harm than good. So Albert, you brought up an interesting uh, point, which is um, there now FDA start to put out some statements about you know what you should pay attention to when you're making these PPEs using 3D printing. Um, I I, kind of, I know some of you are not. This is probably not relevant if you're not in the United States, but I'm just I just want to kind of have uh, your perspectives and your thoughts on how people who now are not traditional medical device manufacturers look at this guidance. And use it as a guide to, to produce, you know, PPE to supply the hospitals locally. Um, so, sorry, I'm not sure if I understand the question correctly, but um, I think um, it's worthwhile for all of us to be aware of the data. Um, I, I mean, even in terms of the Bellis mass that people were talking about, uh, you know, I one of my thoughts is that there's. Uh, um, one might argue that there's not much evidence to the benefit of a form-fitting mask uh, for a surgical mask versus the standard masks. Uh, there's actually a, a number of studies out there that have compared N95 masks versus standard surgical masks uh, that have not been completely form-fitted to individuals. Uh, what they have largely discovered was that there was no difference in terms of transmissibility not specifically associated with the COVID-19 virus, but actually with influenza uh, viruses, which are somewhat similar in regards to size. They found that there was largely a 75 plus percent uh, reduction in transmissibility, uh, whether it was N95 or surgical masks. And that's why the uh, CDC has recommended that people, um, even frontline individuals in the emergency room are largely using surgical masks when N95 masks are not currently available. Uh, N95 masks should specifically uh, or specifically provide benefit in aerosolized procedures when you're intubating patients and when people are uh, undergoing CPAP or BiPAP, uh, any sort of thing where the aerosols can fly into the air and, and contaminate. But by and large, if you're near somebody with COVID-19, um, a surgical mask largely is adequate. Uh, interestingly, there's other data looking at um, surgical masks and or N95 masks versus no masks, which is what the government had largely advocated um, here in the US, uh, and which seems like the, the primary difference between ourselves and South Korea or, or China. And interestingly, what, what uh, a lot of that data has suggested was that there was a 75% decrease in the admissibility of the virus when somebody was wearing any sort of mask versus no mask at all. Yeah. Uh, so those are all things that, that we should kind of consider. Um, uh, and it's, it's nice to kind of base decisions on the data when it's available. Obviously, um, many of our decisions are not based on significant data because it doesn't exist. Yeah. 
And then the, the question that it might sound a little confusing because I myself is uh, still trying to figure out how I could help people by reading the recent FDA guidance. And I think this related to one of the questions the audience has raised is, okay, so I am a just traditional manufacturer using 3D printing manufacturer and I want to help to manufacture some of these PPEs. Do I have to follow, or I mean, there is no any kind of really clear sanitation ISO requirement and not yet. And I would say FDA is actually probably faster than other regulatory bodies around the world on this. Um, do, we, do we have some kind of guideline for those people who just wanna help out locally when there is a lack of data, when there is a lack of guidance to follow, you know, certain sanitation, uh, quality control process? And if so, where can they find these guidance? So yeah, it's interesting. I don't think there's, a, you hit it spot on, there's not specific guidance um, from the FDA. The FDA, you know, is actually very savvy with 3D printing. I think the FAQ that they put out is really more in, in gentle terms to remind people that certain 3D printing technologies like filament-based printers do not have a true airtight seal. Um, and I, I think that's the caution because as soon as COVID-19 became a global pandemic, you know, the, the enthusiast community um, to include both design and manufacturing started, manu you know, designing elegant looking masks that probably don't work at all. Um, and, and it's well-intentioned, but I think that's where the FDA wanted to, to caution people. Um, I think the, it's interesting because each hospital has its different protocol. So, you know, UCSF is taking uh, donations for um, face shield components. But you know, the, the things that you have are the materials. So we use PETG because we have an approach that we've developed for uh, sanitizing it. Uh, but I think you, you don't wanna just mail stuff to the hospital because each hospital has different acceptance criteria and um, you know, they'll hold it in quarantine also so that we know that you know, even if it gets delivered, we're not gonna just automatically deliver it to the front lines, we'll let it sit and then sanitize it and then test for fit and then continue. What I would encourage the enthusiast community is that the advantage of 3D printing is that everybody can have a 3D printer at home. So the instinct is always to say, well, I wanna get as many of these as I can, but for a lot of the desktop printers, if you run it a little bit slower, it, it actually will give you better quality. Um, and I think that those are things where um, it is important to figure out what the need is. So, you know, at, at Dr. Albert Wu's place, you know, they've already got their traditionally manufactured face shield. So a donation there may not help at all, but maybe the local police station or local fire department needs it. And usually we reach out to them and say, you know, this is our capability. I can make 20 of these a week. It's not a lot, it's just my own home computer, but I've been 3D printing as an enthusiast, making toys and gizmos and it's reliable. And, you know, I think those are using the validated STLs from NIH from UCSF or other designs, um, my, my advice is go a little slower because you'll have more consistency. I, I, I'd like to um, add to this. I, I don't think it's just a, a printer or a design issue. And um, when you're looking at materials and you're also looking at how you're gonna handle and disinfect these things, you know, as an open, open platform uh, company, you know, we source our materials from from the chemical companies throughout the world who we feel are you know, probably the right people to ask about how to handle the material. We try to follow, you know, our goal is to follow their recommended guidelines 
you know, they have medical grade materials with known properties and they know how to handle this material. And in fact, in working with the, um, the test swabs, you know, we had to go through, we've gone through an entire process and we're one of the few companies that are able to print a swab that can be autoclaved. Now that, that didn't happen because of our design or our printer alone, that was the material that we sourced to print with. Now, of course, there's ways to um, also handle those materials in post-processing. When we post-process the materials through 3D printing, there are things that we can do that can damage a material and make it less effective. Um, so I think it's, uh, there's a combination and that is working with uh, material companies who, who have known properties and know how to best handle their materials, what the limitations are, making sure that we follow and document post-processing protocols so that at the end of the day, you know, we, can, we have some traceability to this manufacturing process or responsibility uh, around this. And I think, you know, we've also consulted with um, some regulatory and compliance um, you know, companies uh, out there that that understand compliance really well and, um, and have tried to do the best we can, you know, in this short period of time to, one, make sure that you know, the processes are documented and, and will be, in, even though it, there's no guidelines out there, we do know that there are um, regulatory and compliance around medical manufacturing standards that exist and we should try to follow those and, and work again with the material companies that understand their materials to make sure we get optimum output. Um, thank you, Judy. So we have a question that's been- well, If I could just add to that real quick, um, we've, because to Jenny's question about, and I think it relates to both, like how do we, how do we sanitize? How do we interface also with these other organizations that are not hospitals, but senior care, right? Food service, um, you know, police, fire. Uh, you know, that, that's not easy, right? But there are organizations like nonprofits that are maybe already interfacing with these organizations. Uh, and so in Pittsburgh, at least, we have a, an organization called Global Links. It's a nonprofit. And what they used to do prior to COVID-19 was to essentially take surplus medical supplies and equipment from Pittsburgh area hospitals as donations and redeploy those to different disaster areas internationally uh, that are, you know, don't have PPE, you know, other kinds of basic medical equipment. Now they've pivoted that to do Southwest Pennsylvania. But what that is, it's an existing organization that has this kind of established framework and system for deploying basically in a disaster situation, which unfortunately now is everywhere. Um, and uh, basically interfacing with the, these different kinds of community groups. And so what we are doing as CMU working with Global Links is to basically establish, you know, how, you know, basic manufacturing standards for these types of uh, devices, you know, in a normal manufacturing setting, like what do we need as a kind of a baseline to achieve? How do we handle that? How do we sanitize that? What are the materials that are qualified to use in that space? What are the accepted hardware manufacturing processes uh, personnel, uh, you know, interactions and, and uh, kind of protocols um, and transport, and then also trying to interface that with CMU-based, or sorry, uh, university-based makerspaces, small local manufacturers. Hopefully they have a framework that's acceptable to at least a broader range of stakeholders as possible. 
Um, and, and, you know, once we have a model up and running, which we should have by the end of next week, we will be putting that information online so others can at least see what we've established as kind of regionally best practices. And maybe that's something that could be useful to oh, yeah. other areas. Okay. So, yeah. And well, I think okay. I'll echo to Judy's. All right, just got disconnected. Hope you guys can hear me. So I was saying with the uh, prevention, things like face shields, I think there's a good role for the enthusiasts. But for things like culture swabs, uh, that I think has to be left towards a, a completely validated system because even the perfect system isn't 100% accurate. And if your false negative rate goes up just a little bit, now you're having people being told that they're negative when in fact they're not. Um, this is going very invasive, making sure that the edges aren't sharp and are not too dangerous, I think. Um, so looking at things that are interventions, things like ventilator parts, things like culture swabs, uh, probably not the right area for enthusiasts to be 3D printing. Uh, but I think what you're hearing from, I think, all the panelists is that, that you know, face shields, there's, even with traditional manufacturing, even with everyone doing it, there's more people that need it. As you go be outside the hospitals, you go to senior care, you go to first responders, just think about the UPS, FedEx, DHL deliveries. So they, you know, are doing a lot of non-contact deliveries, but they see a lot of people, they have hand sanitizer and gloves, but they aren't given masks and they don't have face shields. And, you know, they may feel more comfortable having that. And so I think those are, are areas where the enthusiasts can very much help. Um, I'd just like to add something to what Alan and Judy have just mentioned. Uh, that Being in the application space for the last five years, what we understood that it's not just about what the technology can do, but it's more about what the people want. So in terms of 3D printing, yes, you can get a lot of quick designs, quick prototypes, uh, quick physical barriers and products for a situation like this. Uh, but to all the enthusiasts out there and all the non-medical manufacturers out there, uh, we need to understand that it's not just about the physical prototype, but it's also about the ap actual application of it. Mm -hmm. So take something as simple as a face shield. Uh, you, could, you could print it on an FDM printer using ABS, PLA material, etc. But if we were to even look at, uh, look at a possibility if it's out in the heat, then it tends to work. So even if you're looking at maybe sanitizing it, sterilizing it with some materials, it's not going to function beyond a certain point. So, and if you're making it in FDMs or something like that, if you're if you're looking at making your uh, splitters or if you're making and looking your making your mask frame with an FDM printer, then if there is any layer skips, then you will you will find issues over there as well. So it's amazing that everyone would would want to try out uh, and manufacture these products so that uh, more people are helped. But we just need to keep these certain things in mind that materials, technologies, uh, the way you print it, what you print it for is really, really important because at the end of the day, what matters is what they need and not what we can produce. So yeah, that's just something I wanted to add. Thank you, for So actually that's one of the questions I received is, you know, is there anywhere, I mean, I think some of you guys already answered this, uh, but is basically, is there anywhere we can find a list of compatible materials and machines? And then I would assume people want to know the assembly process, manufacturing process, validation process as well. I think NIH3D Exchange is one good resource uh, and a couple other links, uh, but do you guys have anything else to add in terms of where we can find these technical combo info? No. Okay. I, think yeah. I mean, at, uh, I think the best thing I for an enthusiast to do 
is, you know, hopefully you have your own primary care doctor, just reach out and say, Hey, you know, I've got a 3d printer. What do you know? Because the enthusiasts, we talk about 3d printing, but there's 3d design and it may turn out that they say, Hey, I need this hook so that we can, you know, do something that doesn't really have patient contact, but we have stuff on the floor and you say, well, I can totally do that. Or they'll say, this is what we need. And you may be able to do an initial design and then send it somewhere where it can be manufactured. Maybe that hospital has manufacturing capability or local dental you know, facilities across the uh, US, HP, you know, 3D systems. They've got a good network where now all of a sudden you have a small hospital that doesn't, isn't savvy to 3D printing. The enthusiast has been able to reverse engineer or have something that should work and say, hey, I need this printed on something that I don't actually own, but that resource is there and you can, the, that hospital can work with their local department of public health. And thankfully, I think there are universities with 3D printers everywhere in the United States. And then you can start to work the way up the ladder. So, um, you know, I think if you're looking to help, reach out to your own doctor and see if they need any help. Because sometimes it's something as simple as, you know, something to push a button or open a door without being, you know, contact. There's a lot of opportunities that I consider low hanging fruit um, that we shouldn't ignore. Materialize has a good site. They have a variety of door openers. So you can use your arm to open it instead of grabbing the handle with your hand. So they've got a whole bunch of different designs of these. I'm amazed, Alita, you're really a, a pro at Zoom with all the demos ready on hand. It's all about um, and this, this, this is also relevant to one of the questions uh, our audience brought up is what are other possibilities with 3D printing in this crisis, you know, in addition to mask, masks, ventilator splitters, uh, shield that we already talked about. Light scopes. The other things, yeah, swabs, yeah. I mean, I think there are near-term and, and long-term solutions, right? I mean, near-term solutions is really uh, plugging the supply chain problem, right, and addressing things that we don't have that we need that we know we need. I mean, you know, we're doing research at the university, right? We have uh, folks working on um, kind of uh, microfabricated uh, kind of kind of like uh, microfluidic systems for rapid virus detection. Uh, there's some some of these are already being commercialized too, but you know, they can have different kinds of capability. We're also working on 3D bioprinting a model of the, of the long airway, right? To help study the basic process of coronavirus type infection and inflammation so we can get more basic science understanding, right? These are very challenging to study during these kinds of acute pandemics, which keep popping up, right? But, you know, and animal models are not great. So how do we develop, you know, improved models for studying that? But that's not going to help us right now, right? That may help us eventually get a handle on coronavirus in general, um, or at least some more basic science understanding. Um, but I don't know if that answers your question, but those are some of the longer term things. I, I hate to say it, um, I think the options for an enthusiast with a 3D printer at home or the high school kid who wants to 3D print stuff is really kind of limited uh, largely to, to the um, shield manufacturer uh, issue. I, I think even, uh, you know, there's been a lot of enthusiasm about all sorts of things. People have been talking about uh, ventilator splitters and uh, numerous societies from anesthesia and critical care have already put out large statements um, um, arguing against the use of these types of splitters. Um, and uh, there's some rumor that New York may have instituted splitters, but in very limited circumstances, only in kind of the direst circumstances. Um, 
there's been lots of printing of venturi valves. I think there are probably millions of venturi valves out there with probably two in use in the world uh, today. I think we have to be judicious in terms of uh, what we print and, and the utilization of resources because uh, I, I think I appreciate the enthusiasm that's out there, but it needs to be directed into the right direction. Um, and and uh, I, I think it was Alan who was talking about, you know, get, get in touch with your local doctor's office, your local hospital, see what they need. That's kind of where we are, where uh, the hospital comes to us with unique problems uh, and an inability to source the equipment from, from elsewhere. And, and that's where we can help. Um, and some of those um, uh, sourcing issues are completely unpredictable. Uh, one of the things that nobody would have uh, anticipated would be a largely a national shortage of testing or, or N95 fitting supplies, including the Bitrex solution that allows uh, a, uh, a healthcare provider to actually be fitted for an N95 mask. There's actually a national shortage of that. So even if you wanted to be fitted with an N95 to confirm that you're safe to see a patient, it's gonna be difficult to do that because most hospitals have run short and are un unable to actually test you to see if you're safe. Yeah, and I think uh, you brought up the, the, the ventilator splitter thing. I think um, it, it is a part where 3D printing, you know, probably does not play a role and the reason for or, or splitters at all. Um, and the reason is that the splitters works very well for mass casualty events like the Las Vegas shootings. And part of that is because there's a lot of blood loss, but the lungs themselves are not damaged. With COVID-19, the lungs are damaged. And so the way that I can best explain it as a spine surgeon is to think that you're trying to blow up a balloon and now you're splitting it to four balloons, but some balloons are thinner, some balloons are thicker, some are bigger and some are smaller. So in your mind, you think to yourself, well, there's a shortage. I'm going to get four more patients and I can maybe save four people. It's better than nothing. But the reality is you might end up killing four people instead of saving just that one. Um, so I think that is one of those things that's a technically very easy solution. But I think that's where the clinical assessment, clinical validity uh, is needed because that's the one where most anesthesiologists will say it, it's, it actually won't work for COVID-19 as it did for other scenarios because each patient has a different lung compliance, each patient's a little bit different size, and then more technically things like mechanical dead space. So now, you know, with each breath we take, there's some air that doesn't get exchanged, and that's okay. You just take a bigger breath. But the same thing is true for a ventilator. So for each pump that it's going, if you have more tubing and now it's four times as much tubing, then the amount of fresh gas that's being delivered and amount of fresh CO2 that is you know, being removed is also decreased. Um, so it is one that again was hopeful, um, but I think for this particular pandemic it is not going to be useful. And as Dr. Wu mentioned that the, uh, the, there's a joint statement from several of the anesthesia societies saying that, that it's just not recommended because our technology to control the, the vent for four different patients is not there and may cause more harm. Thank you. And that, I think that's why it's important to have this conversation between clinicians, the clinical side, hospitals, and the manufacturers, more direct conversations. Um, so at the beginning of when the crisis started, maybe just four weeks ago, I got a lot of people approaching me saying, is there some kind of matching process where you know, we're not talking about enthusiasts, but actually, you know, somewhat volume, small volume manufacturer in 3D printing can be matched to needs of hospitals or some kind of match maker process. 
Um, and then recently I saw that American Makes uh, has announced that they have a website, it's well-designed. I checked them out uh, myself. Um, so I am just, uh, I'm curious how that process is working for everybody. And also I know Dr. Holt Nemec is somewhat similar in nature uh, to American Makes in a way. Do you guys have some kind of matchmaking, you know, is this process efficient? Is, you know, how, how does it work? Yeah, we, we actually uh, just kind of uh, started, um, you know, initially it was more of a ad hoc uh, process where, you know, the request came in and, and we started to uh, connect them, um, I mean, the hospital community with the uh, some of the 3D printing service providers. Uh, I mentioned a couple of names just now. So uh, AM is one of the companies in Singapore. They have, they're using FDM printers primarily for a lot of the industrial 3D printing. And they were able to ramp uh, the uh, open source uh, facial uh, strap design that was out there. And, and they're, they're basically now running uh, about uh, tens of thousands of these, uh, you, know, uh, you know, quite, quite, I think on a weekly basis. Um, and uh, so, so of course, uh, we, we, we were also looking at some of the um, OEMs uh, like Formlabs, uh, uh, Ultimaker, for example, I think. Some of these companies actually have presence in Singapore, so they have made themselves uh, uh, quite, um, you know, early stage, quite available in terms of what they have in Singapore. Um, because we were basically calling and, and getting uh, some understanding what sort of capacity, um, you know, from the private sector would, should that be a need for us to activate uh, some of these capacity. Uh, we also actually did um, uh, an exercise where we look at all the public infrastructure uh, this is a kind of a request from the government of Singapore and, and um, you know, there's a lot of capacity, I would say, but I think in terms of act, trying to activate uh, them on a short notice, um, uh, our current strategy is really to focus on getting the private sector to come up to speed uh, as quickly as possible. Um, I think we've looked at the American Mix website. I thought it was ex excellent and very well organized. Uh, we've actually been trying to get a, a similar website up and going. Uh, I think. Uh, hopefully within the next uh, few days or so. Um, and uh, I think, uh, yeah, I think that's, a, that's the current situation that we have. Thank you. Okay, we can go through some more uh, audience questions. Nabil, do you have any questions on your end? I think a question um, that I have and a question that came up in the, uh, in the Q and A's regarding sterilization, we mentioned uh, various sterilization processes. Uh, a panelist has a question regarding the use of um, UVC um, light to um, to sterilize ventilators or equipment. What is everyone's thoughts on using UVC? So, uh, you know, I'll put a shout out for the website n95decon.org. Uh, it is Stanford, UCSF, and several others uh, that have come together to provide some evidence-based uh, discussion about what is out there. And they have put out three publications on heat and humidity, uh, UVC, and the hydrogen peroxide vapor and hydrogen peroxide gas plasma. And it kind of talks about some of the pros and cons. And, you know, the UVC, I'm stepping back, none of the data is specific for COVID-19. It's typically for what is known for other um, viruses such as influenza, uh, but n95decon.org is a, a place if you look at the publications, has it, and it's, uh, you can look at the team, 
it's uh, not a company, it's multiple universities coming together uh, to, to discuss that. So I think this is one that um, is helpful. I think the reality is that, you know, even if you have the reuse, it's still a problem. And as you talk about it in the hospital, you know, even like the face shields, we start saying, well, we need it if you're in aerosolized and producing things. But if you had an infinite supply, you would start to increase it and increase it and increase it in terms of who gets it. Um, so I think that's the part where the, there's a ramp up, I think 3D printing, if we can figure out a way to develop a, a good mask, it is helpful. You know, the snorkel mask has been discussed in Italy and Stanford has a design as well. And that's looking promising. Printer Press helped with some of the printing on those. Um, but I think that this is an ongoing thing. You want to be able to make sure you're, you're up to date, but those are some good resources to have. Okay, we'll post that on our website later too. Thank you, Alan. Um, uh, another question, I think this is coming from an enthusiast angle. Uh, what 3D printer and material would you recommend for someone starting out? Well, you know, I mean, to answer that pretty quickly, um, it depends on the, the printer that they're working with. You know, for an example, a material from a chemical company that you might be printing on an origin printer is not going to print exactly the same on another printer. So I think you are it best to reach out to the manufacturer, understand what materials that they have validated for that particular application on their printer and, and how to work best with it would be my advice. Um, it, it, that's a, a statement that, or a question that's probably too general. I think you need to understand the equipment that they're trying to print on. So we had a very early question earlier this morning and some of the panelists already typed in the answer, but I think it, it actually points to a bigger question. And so the question originally is, um, you know, added manufacturing has done a great job filling the immediate needs for some of the needs, I would say PPE and medical parts, but the larger manufacturer, other non 3D printing manufacturers will eventually catch up to fill the gap. Um, and there are some answers that's actually typed in here. Um, so I'm, I want to open this question up to the panelists. Also, I think just looking at a larger, um, you know, more futuristic view is, okay, so we can fill the gap in this momentary crisis, but how can we learn from this crisis and redefine our industry? And not that we're not just a gap filler, but what can we learn from this crisis so that we can grow as an industry. I, I know at, at HP, um, there was a small group of us that were focused on healthcare 3D printing. We now have dozens of people that are very familiar with the requirements of healthcare 3D printing and manufacturing requirements, the FDA requirements, the, the um, document control requirements for, for medical devices. People now know the difference between the category one, category two, category three uh, devices. So I, I think it, at HP, um, huge leap in, in learning on what it takes to actually manufacture a, a medical device. So I think we're gonna see a lot of benefits uh, on the other side of this, going back to the things that make sense to 3D print. And it's mainly personalized devices, whether it's surgical guides, forms for dental aligners, uh, denture-based material, whatever, things that are personalized make a lot more sense to 3D print 
rather than uh, mass volume injection molded plastic type stuff. I, I think to um, you know to add to this this question here. I think that we've learned a lot about where three D printing is applicable. One thing I think for this industry is, you know, th this is not a a prototype piece of equipment anymore. We can very effectively um, produce um, mass quantities of customized applications. Uh, but also understanding that, you know, in order for this industry to move forward, a, a vertically integrated concept is not going to help us grow. You know, having an open forum, what's really helped us move this industry forward in a very short time in a crisis situation is collaboration. We should walk away with the idea of the, the collaborative effort to to advance additive manufacturing as a whole. You know, this is not just a 3D manufacturer. This is something that involved, um, you know, uh, individuals who had expertise in lattice design, you know, the expertise of the material companies, you know, let, let the world-class material companies come to the table. I mean, they have years of expertise. They have the scalability to do that, but it's, you know, bringing it, to the table where it's a collaborative effort. And then again, yeah, I mean, walking away with some known standards in place. I don't know that the, the standards are new. I think it's when you have people reacting in a crisis situation, trying to make sure that you do um, comply with known standards and doing that to ensure that we're doing more help than harm. But um, one, one learn, one experience that I think origin has recognized is how critical those those partnerships are. Those really really smart people out there all collaborating together. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's how I felt too. Um, I mean, a lot of people reach to me partially is because they want to work together, and I very appreciative um, that you know, despite all their own personal challenges, they showed a lot of compassion and creativity on the sand. Nabil, do you have any more questions on your end here? Um, th th there was a, a question from the audience regarding um, uh, a printing uh, face masks. Um, what type of printers would be um, more ideally suited, FDM printers or DLP printers? Uh, so for face masks, uh, mm -hmm. there isn't really a good validated system yet. FDM, FFF is off the table because you cannot get an airtight seal. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that FDM printers may be helpful if you're doing some initial fitting or some you know, design prototyping, but for a production device, uh, you cannot use FDM, FFF for a mask. That's very different than the shield or very different from an assistive device. Thank you. Yeah, it, it does seem that unfortunately, even though there are, a lot, there are a lot of problems and there is a crisis going on, 3D printing cannot solve all the problem. Um, and I think, you know, partly I'm looking at it, I'm also a healthcare provider myself. You know, I think 3D printing can replace some of the traditional manufacturer activities. But I, I wonder, I, I actually think that there are more potential out there for 3D printing by creating opportunities, which means our designs that didn't exist before, things that we didn't do before, didn't think about. Testing hood, like Albert was, was Albert or someone else said about it. Um, you know, how can we create a creative solution for 
for a process like that um, that traditional manufacturers haven't thought about because we rarely ever in this kind of crisis. Um, so I'm just, yeah, I'm hoping that more design can come up to, to have some more creative solutions. So I think we've done a really uh, good conversation today. Um, let, let me just, uh, you know, I think we answered most of the questions and thank you very much panelists for typing in some of the questions as well. Uh, quite busy conversation. Do you, uh, I want to invite you guys to have some finer, uh, final inputs, um, any final thoughts? Be safe, wash your hands. <laughs> Yeah, I, I had a question game. for everyone, um, just uh, just out of curiosity. So, I mean, one of the things I think is unique about this situation versus anything I've ever seen is that literally things are changing day by day, if not hour by hour. Yes. Um, so just last night, uh, Pennsylvania, the governor said that everyone should wear a mask anytime they leave their house for the entire state. I was just curious, is that the situation in the locations that other folks are, are in? Yeah. I, yeah, here, yes. In San Francisco, yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's the same in Singapore. Um, the government is now advising everyone to wear a mask when you go out. And can I ask you if you can protect have the masks? others? Yeah. Does anyone have the mask? Because, you know, for the last you know month and a half, they're like, don't wear a mask. And then last night it was wear a mask and no one has masks. So it's kind of a, I guess we have scarves, but it's kind of a, it's an odd scenario. I, I kind of feel like our government is not really helping both from a both from a safety standpoint sometimes as well as like a, a sanity standpoint right because suddenly now everyone freaks out they don't have a mask and um yeah. i feel like you know there's a there's an effort here that needs to grow beyond just what we're talking about as a around the ppe and the 3d printing there needs to be i think some sort of organizational framework hopefully from governments and and local communities in a coordinated way to figure out best practices and how we distribute information and solutions because right now it's a mess. Yeah, I think we're in a very interesting time. I mean, you know, technically speaking, 3D Hills and our audience, we're somewhat grassroots. You know, we kind of grow just because we are curious and we want to explore. And, you know, technically speaking, it's much better if you have a very clear central command on, let's say, 3D printing to help COVID-19 crisis. But we're really seeing a slow growth um, now people finally organizing themselves. We have more validated designs slowly showing up. There's a great website now. People can get matchmaking done. Um, but it didn't start that way. You know, it's not like, okay, we know what, what we're going to do. And I think that translates into personal, uh, how we deal with this crisis as well. Like, I, I imagine, you know, several weeks ago, every day I wake up, I spent a couple of hours reading news because there's so many changes going on and then trying to just to deal with those changes, information changes, supply changes, how we're going to do our own lifestyle changes first. I think that, I, I think from organizational government perspective, maybe they're dealing with the same thing is there are just so many elements that's just changing simultaneously. I, I don't know if they know what the solution is right away. Uh, and for I organization think, with layers like that, it may take even longer to figure out a strategy. Uh, I think some of the difficulty is that we are dealing with an ever-changing environment. Uh, I think all of us 
government included want to generally in the U.S. Uh, proceed with an abundance of caution, as everybody likes to say. Uh, and in my own hospital, uh, due to an abundance of caution, we um, uh, recommended N95 masks anytime uh, you went into a room of a patient who was potentially COVID positive. Um, and uh, many of the people on our staff have been on CNN and are considered national, if not world experts on some of these subjects. Um, immediate, say two days after we had initially established that policy, the hospital did, a, did an about face and then suggested that unless an aerosol generating procedure was uh, uh, being undertaken that, that you should stop use of N95 masks and that you need to wear a surgical mask. Um, and when the administration was asked about why they would make such a ridiculous decision or ridiculous about face within the course of 24 to 48 hours, uh, the reality is that you know all our providers and the and even the, those people making the decisions at the hospital are really doing the best that they can. But um, uh, there's a time when you can use an abundance of caution, and there's a time when you are stretched thin, um, and are and the the string is just about to snap. And when our when our hospital administrators were made aware that the um, so many N95 masks were going out the window that we had a two-week supply, and then we would be out completely, uh, even before the surge hit, then reality dawned on them, and then they needed to tighten up the stirrups. I think uh, the reality with the situation is that the government is starting to realize that they wanted, to, initially they wanted to save the surgical masks for um, hospital personnel, but they're starting to realize that people walking around without a mask and zooming by on a bicycle and uh, and whizzing by with a cloud of smoke um, as they're walking by you are starting to spread this virus and that we are not seeing uh, the tempering of the curve that we were hoping for. And again, uh, one of the things I mentioned very early on was that um, the main difference between how China and Korea and many of the Asian countries dealt with this issue versus the Western countries is the fact that the Asian countries all use masks and they had a ready supply of them. Um, and I think we're starting to see the changes in the curve as a result. And because of that, even uh, very distinguished individuals uh, in government um, uh, and a lot of our physician advocates are are suggesting that everybody should wear masks. Uh, the big question is whether the data supports using a cloth mask uh, versus a surgical mask. And I don't know that anybody knows that answer, but when the CDC goes so far as to suggest that uh, a healthcare provider should use a bandana to walk into a high risk room, like we are in dire straits. So uh, thank goodness, uh, many of us sitting on the panels are not in those situations just yet. Uh, but I do think we need to be cognizant of the danger that's facing all of us in the near term future. Anyone else has one final thought? Yeah, maybe I'll just uh, add a little bit. I think, um, I mean, the very fact that we are in this uh, webinar in the first place, I think that there's a general awareness that uh, this technology, of course, is still uh, nascent, but uh, what it has done so far is that is enabled, uh, at least from my, my uh, observation, is enabled a lot of the uh, creation of uh, products uh, that traditionally we probably wouldn't even talk about it, right? Because, uh, I mean, this is a, in some ways I've called it necessity is a, 
you know, drives innovation. So um, we've, we've had a, uh, even traditional manufacturers, in fact, coming to us in the last week, uh, you know, asking me specifically, I mean, in the past, they wouldn't even talk to me, right? But today they're actually coming to me and say, hey, uh, you know, we, we heard about 3D printing. What do you think you can do with this, um, you know, to augment the, you know, the current traditional technologies they have? So I'm actually quite optimistic uh, in terms of the, the future prospects of 3D printing. I mean, I've seen at firsthand what uh, we've actually been able to do actually within a week, um, you know, to ram some production on swaps and, and face shields and, and whatnots. And of course, other parts of the world, we've seen tremendous uh, innovation and tremendous creativity uh, by the global 3D printing com community. So uh, I, I just have to say that, you know, we, we just have to keep uh, plugging on. I mean, uh, in some ways, every little bit of effort that we put in uh, will will make a difference. Thank you. Well said. Thank you, Dr. Han. Alan, do you have anything uh, final thought? No, I mean I think that the you know the best advice is to to stay indoors. You know I think this is the the shelter in place really does make a difference. Um, for those of us in the United States, uh, when you go do your supply run, do take a look and see if the uh, item on the shelf has a WIC item. That's uh, women and children's for uh, the families that don't have enough money, they can get support and they actually can only buy specific brands of products. So if you see two different cereals and they look the same, but one of them has the, that Logan, one of them doesn't, you want to save it for somebody else. Um, I, I think don't underestimate the needs of other essential businesses. So healthcare is the primary one and it's highly regulated, but I can imagine that, you know, the daycare centers that are open, maybe there are ways that you can help uh, schools that are closed. Maybe there are ways that you can help with creating educational content. You know, 3D Heels is not just about having things or machines that you have to ship and deliver, but it is a community of those that are looking to help. So maybe you can help create online curriculums or do things that help, you know, for the kids that are at home, not at school. You know, there are a lot of ways to help that, you know, it's not like we have a hammer and a nail and looking to see what we can do with it. You know, everybody that's part of 3D Hills is here because of hope, here because they have some sort of creative streak and a desire to help. So, you know, I think don't get into tunnel vision that you can only help hospitals, you can only help first responders. This is affecting everybody. And any little bit that you hear from somebody, they say, you know, I can't do this or I need help with that. That is something that, um, that you can do for everybody here, everyone's comfortable using Zoom or video chat, but you can imagine that there may be areas where, you know, in senior citizen homes where they aren't as tech savvy. So just being able to say, well, I'm going to help and maybe I'll donate an iPad or, or help set up your iPad so that these families that are now isolated, they have a way to communicate where, you know, you're acting as tech support. It's not printing, but it's helping. It's making a difference. And so I think reaching out to your local community is the easiest way that we don't have to travel and you don't have to spread or do anything. You can follow shelter in place protocols and, and start off with that because I think together we will make it through. I think this is a time that is very challenging for hospitals and it's very challenging for the general public that doesn't have the expertise or knowledge um, that anybody that's affiliated with the medical community does. Thank you, well said. Yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, this webinar obviously is exploring 3D printing and COVID-19, but I think everybody here is starting to play other roles as this crisis unravel itself. Uh, I, I think some of us who are in hospitals are starting to become the 
the procurer for masks is all kind of PPE, trying to get a hundred donation here and there. But I think those hundred masks could save someone's lives. Uh, so it's, it's important to pick up other roles um, in addition to think about, you know, how 3D printing can change the world. Um, Nabil, do you have anything else you want to add? Sure. I, uh, thank you for, um, for your words there, Alan. You know, I, I think that this is just a precarious time where there's so many vulnerable individuals. And um, for those of us that have chosen these fields in health or industry regarding health, we often, we, we, it, we had to start from an, a starting point of idealism to help. And I think it's important to realize that, especially in these times where we can't travel distances, uh, we'll always be most effective where we are local. Um, and in, in this time where there's so many individuals in our community that even with stay-at-home orders may not take these orders seriously, it's important that we show personal leadership and can be as effective as we personally can. So, uh, you know, by having instruments like 3D printers, sometimes we say, oh, I can print this, let me put it into use. But like Feroza said and, and others, it's important that we we're printing to the needs of our local communities if we're printing, or we're helping to um, we're helping with isolation issues, as Alan said. Um, you know, so we can start with our personal networks, and uh, and and use that as a starting point to, to make sure where we are local, we're, we're we're matching our the immediate needs of our communities. Thank you. Um, I have a piece of advice. That? Why don't everybody that's on this, you know, at the end, pick up the phone and call a colleague you haven't seen since the shelter in place or call a, a family member that you haven't seen in the last month uh, or and give them a, or a friend. Give them a call because I think that's just as important as what we're doing in the hospital and what we're doing in the design lab. Yes, I, I've been, I hosted many happy hours uh, since the, the quarantine and I might just host another happy hour with the 3D Heels audience. Have a beer. Well, thank you very much, everyone, for your time today. Um, very valuable advice. We will share the video online with um, the entire world, hopefully. And uh, I, um, I've learned so much. And I'll also collect some of the links uh, that you mentioned uh, by reviewing the video. And, uh, and then we'll go from there. And you know, this is not the only conversation we're going to have. We do plan to have other conversations soon because we're not really out of the woods yet. Um, so thank you very much for joining us today and take care. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you, Jenny. Thanks. Thank you. 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 Thank you.